0: Aircraft maintenance is in desperate need of tech. Keeping flights safe and on time are obviously important to airlines and anyone who flies. So today's discussion is with this guy.
1: I'm Shane Ballman, founder and CEO of Synapse MX.
0: He's taking a wealth of industry experience and using it to make an entire industry run more smoothly. Get ready for takeoff. Sorry. Sorry for the pun. So what's your story?
1: Um, I'm a third generation pilot. My grandfather pushed gliders off of mountains. Uh, my dad got his pilot's license when I was in high school. And um, aviation is just in my blood. And so I went to a uh, aviation university, uh, Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University down in Daytona Beach. And while I was there, I originally started my career out thinking, hey, I'm going to be an airline pilot, because that sounded like a fun thing to do. And then as I got more and more involved in aviation I realized that I really don't want to be home uh, only two weeks out of a month right Mm -hmm. that just doesn't seem fun to me so I switched over to uh, the computer science program at Ember Riddle and started working on things there and and got to calculus three and I think the whole course was just about going insane on differential equations and I thought I really don't want to do this the rest of my life either (laughs) So uh, I switched over to the business program, and uh, Embry-Riddle actually has a really great aviation business program that's focused on um, running an airline. So uh, I finished my degree out in um, aviation business, went and got a job for a small little airline called Vacation Express, which was essentially doing charter flights down to the the Caribbean. And um, from there, I had the opportunity to start at the the ground floor, um, collecting bags and Uh, checking people in for their flights, and moved all my way up to the um, station manager position. So helping kind of coordinate the logistics of uh, 12 different airplanes coming in and out, uh, two hub-and-spoke operations, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. Um, And it was an interesting look at how small little scrappy upstart airlines work. Um, Then I had a really great opportunity show up to work for Airtran Airways uh, in their dispatch office. So... I left Vacation Express and went to work for Airtran, started in dispatch, and then uh, very quickly realized that the maintenance organization uh, was an incredible growth opportunity for me. Um, I didn't come from a a maintenance background, but in aviation, if you're a pilot, you have to understand the same mechanical systems that the maintenance guys do. You're just not the ones repairing them. Started as a maintenance planner at Airtran, interacting with the The guys on the ground who are fixing the airplanes and very quickly rose through the ranks to become um, their point of contact for maintenance technology and then that turned into me running the maintenance technology group and i had a bunch of folks there that uh, worked for me and we built technology tools out to to turn them from a manual process into a highly automated one Uh, so just to put that in context and i'm going to date myself here uh, we were using PCMCIa cards to pull data off of aircraft. Uh, we had dot matrix printers in our office. We had a, a mainframe terminal that they would log into, and it looked like a DOS screen, right? So that's how you'd run your mainframe. What year reports. was this? Uh, this was in two thousand and one.
2: That's very scary. <laughs> um, at the turn of the millennium.
1: So yeah. Um, part of my directive was to build automation tools in so that they could do a better job of maintaining their stuff with better technology. And uh, we took them from the the dot matrix printers and the terrible old maintenance software to kind of modern softwares with push notifications going out to their phones and big 60-inch dashboards on the wall showing real-time maintenance health and uh, all sorts of Um, very real-time, very plugged-in sort of things, and and it got noticed. Uh, In aviation, we are very collaborative on the maintenance side of the things because as an industry, we care about safety. Um, So, you know, you can't collude so much on the revenue-generating side because that's anti-competitive behavior. But on the maintenance side, you know, we are free to exchange information, thoughts, ideas, all kinds of stuff. Uh, other airlines would come through and take a tour of what we were doing at Airtran, and they would see all these dashboards and the notifications, and the executives are showing off like, oh, hey, look, I can tell you exactly what's going on right now. And everyone was impressed with that. And that's kind of where we uh, we got the idea that we should – there was a, a, an opportunity here to build the company. Uh, the light bulb went off after, like, the 15th or 20th airline came through and said, that's cool – Where'd you get that? Can we buy it?
0: A lot of the founders we've spoken to come at it where they're entrepreneurs and then they find the problem, maybe they stumble upon the problem, but you're kind of coming at it within the industry.
1: Oh, it was my headache for sure.
0: Right. Um, I think that's interesting. So did you have that desire to start your own company before, or is this just something it just happened naturally?
1: It it sort of evolved. Yeah, I I had no desire to be an entrepreneur. I mean, it looked cool, and yeah, the things they're doing in Silicon Valley look amazing. And man, it'd be nice to be a part of that. But I never really saw myself into it. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, sort of a a weird set of circumstances here, where Southwest came along here and bought Airtran, partly uh, because of the technology tools that we had built in maintenance and. had the opportunity to work for Southwest for a couple years, and great learning experience there as well. But the the idea of building the software, serving the industry, uh, was just too hard for me to ignore. And so I, I walked away from a six-figure job and uh, incredible benefits at like the number three best place in the country to work in order to go do this thing. Which... What
0: was it like? That what was it that really motivated that like push? That like that pushed you to? say, I'm going to leave the security of this job. Was it like, I I, I can make a lot more money doing it on my own? Was it, I want this adventure? Like, what was it that was like, I'm going to be an entrepreneur now?
1: So you're going to laugh. Okay, good. I watched this really terrible rip of a Steve Jobs video where he's talking about how everyday people do things, Mm -hmm. and why not you? They're not any smarter than you or any more talented than you. Just go do this, right? And I thought, okay that actually sounds like really good advice. And so that was kind of the thing that pushed me over the edge. And it's so cliche to say like, Steve Jobs motivated me to be an entrepreneur, but um, that, that really was a thing. I, I went home and watched that video one night and then I wrote, I don't know, like this 20 page manifesto of what we were gonna do and the things we were gonna tackle and how we were gonna tackle them. And um, looking back at that now, some of that is just completely insane. Um, <laughs>
0: insane in what way?
1: Uh, oh, overreaching. Mm -hmm. way overreaching um so that's probably like a i don't know a 10-year plan that i decided i was going to do in one year like all right (laughs) perspective is amazing well Um, that's
0: but i think you kind of have to start a little bit i I think santosh tweeted something about this like you have to start kind of delusional at first um and that's what makes you think oh i can do this and then once you get in you're like oh
1: well i definitely had the delusional thing down so (laughs) good off on a good start I guess. <laughs> yeah.
2: So talk to us, you know, you you're a solo founder. That wasn't the plan out, out of the gate, but what has kind of this adventure been like as a solo founder?
1: It is an interesting journey. So I would say that there are a lot of benefits that come from being a solo founder um because you have to juggle more hats, which means you have to prioritize. And I'm a technical founder myself, so I can code, which is good, but it's also bad because, in addition to having investor conversations and talking with customers and prospective customers, now you're also the one building the product. So, uh, being able to triage and figure out, you know, what is the most important thing to move the company forward right now is a really good skill set to to build. And this is really a trial by fire. Like, how how can you make the right decision to survive for another day? So, sure.
2: How how do you go without like? talking to another individual that is going through the same plight or the same dilemmas, is that sometimes stressful?
1: Oh, yeah, totally. So not having someone that is in in the boat with me is a challenge, but uh, I have been building up a network of people who have gone through this type of journey themselves, either as a solo founder or as part of a team. And so there are people that I can reach out to that understand the lonely journey of a CEO and a startup or understand the challenge of building the technology platform out in a startup. So, you know, it it would be nice to have someone by my side as a partner for all this, but I don't think it's required in every circumstance. So
2: what types of people are you looking at to kind of surround yourself with or, or what are the qualities rather of this network that you've built of the folks that you reach out to?
1: Uh, The easy answer is people that are smarter than I am. And I like people that challenge me on a lot of stuff. Uh, I don't want to be surrounded by yes people who want to be nice to my feelings. I want someone to tell me if my baby's ugly, because if my friends won't do it and my confidants won't do it, then nobody will do it. So I I look for people who will actively say, this is the dumbest idea that you've ever had. Don't pursue that any further.
0: Do you take... Every piece of advice, I'm assuming with a grain of salt, like what is your decision making process? Do you vet it through many people? Like, I just flip made... a coin. Perfect. <laughs> there you go.
1: <laughs> cool. So, yeah, uh, this is a great question. Um, it is a challenge to figure out the perspective of the person that's saying that to you, right? So, someone who doesn't have aviation knowledge, I mean, aviation is highly, highly regulated, right? So, you can't just implement some things and see how it goes, right? The F it, ship it mentality doesn't work in aviation. Mm -hmm. So um, when someone says, well, you just need to iterate through the property or through the products that much quicker, you you just can't do that. So you you have to kind of keep those things in mind that, yeah, there are some things that are good for the startup mentality, but then you have to temper that with You know, we are super regulated and there's an FAA inspector at the flight standards office that's going to come and throw a fit if he sees a customer using something that you just sort of threw out there and slapped together. So kind of balancing those two Mm -hmm. is a little bit of a challenge.
2: Speak to the fact that, you know, out of all the companies here this summer, I don't think anybody else is in as highly regulated of a business as you. Touch on those dynamics not only with your product, but also the sales cycle. Like, how are you navigating that? Do you have any perspectives to offer other founders that are also targeting the regulated industries?
1: Well, I would say don't go after a regulated industry if (laughs) if you're not intimately familiar with it, because uh, you might as well just bang your head on the desk. I think the only other industry that's just as heavily regulated as aviation from a safety perspective would be, like, nuclear power, right? Mm -hmm. So those would be two areas that I would avoid. I think that it is very possible to go into a space that's regulated, assuming that there is a very specific pain point that you have experience solving or someone that you're working with has explained it to you in great detail, and that there's a clear path from A to B so that you can capitalize on the opportunity that's there. Uh, For us specifically, we're targeting the way that the aircraft maintenance teams collaborate on their work and then using the data points from how these guys are are actually performing their work whether it's changing a tire up to changing an engine to changing a seat inside the airplane um, so keeping track of all the the times and statistics around what they do in addition to the types of parts that they use and things like that in order to be able to essentially do money ball for aircraft maintenance so now based on where an airplane has an issue i can tell you how long it should typically take to fix what the types of parts you should need who the best person on your shift is to tackle that and get the airplane back up in the air and
2: and right now you're all this is done by pencil paper Spreadsheet, Word doc type?
1: Yeah, or? so the, the scary version uh, at some of the very, very small and lean carriers would be post it notes, whiteboards, uh, paper, Excel Excellent. spreadsheets. As you move up in fleet size, it becomes far more complicated to do that manually. So they start to use things like homegrown access databases, still a lot of Excel that's used. Uh, and then moving up even further to like the major airlines, they actually have software that they've bought typically spent tens of millions of dollars to deploy and maintain every year. And it does a much better job of tracking things, but doesn't really help them understand the insights hidden in all that data.
0: It's incredible to me. Is it just because it's a regulated industry that it's so behind the times? It's 2016. and it, I don't know. It just sounds kind of like these problems should have been solved already. Yep. It's just kind of crazy to me because yep. I, I didn't realize that.
1: Yeah. And most people don't because you think aviation and and airlines and you think oh it's super easy like I can I can buy a ticket on my phone and I can go through the TSA with my phone and I don't have to deal with any of this stuff but that's all on the the revenue generating side and on the maintenance side it's such a cost center that they really don't like to spend money there unless they have to and as a result you know these guys just sort of scrape by with what they have more often than not. Mm -hmm.
0: So as a first-time founder and a solo founder I'm sure you've had lots of learning experiences as you've built this company. Can you talk a little bit about what, has, what have you learned about yourself? And you're like, wow, I'm really good at this. And maybe also what you realize you're really bad at.
1: Wow, okay. Um, so I'm really good at getting into the weeds um, because I've got almost a decade and a half, a decade and a half of experience um, that allows me to really talk about things with a subject matter expert. So if they, they want to get particular about something, you know, I've got the chops to back that up, which is good. The downside is that sometimes I try to deploy that when I'm selling and, you know, you don't want to get too far into the weeds when you're doing sales calls and just trying to get interest on things. So I would say that selling is definitely something that I am not good at, but Mm -hmm. I am intentionally putting myself in places that make me uncomfortable in order to grow. I have had some really terrible sales calls, um, but every one of them that has gone bad has been a learning experience to Mm -hmm. say, okay, well, next time don't do this, which they'll maybe take offense to. So let's do something else instead.
0: Do you have a salesperson on your team as of
1: now? I have some mentors Ah. uh, who are able to um, help out from time to time. But by and large, um, no. I have a a sales development rep who's going out and hustling up the contacts and qualifying them for me. And then when they turn out to be good, then they they, uh, hand them off to me, and then I go from there.
0: Do you have any tips for, like, CTO types who are having to take on sales, just how to handle sales when you're a non-salesperson.
1: Read everything you can. So like research? um, Yeah, research, books. You have to look for things that are applicable to your industry too. Oh, read
0: about sales is what you're saying. Okay.
1: Yeah, so if if your sales model is based around a single sale, then stuff from like Zig Ziglar would be good because it's not about building a relationship. Uh, If you have to build a relationship to do sales like we do, our, our sales cycle is long. Uh, it's heavily regulated they don't make changes quickly so you're looking at six to twelve months typically some of them are like 18 months mm-hmm. that is so much based on relationships it's not even funny so these are things that you you foster way earlier than the check ever gets signed um, and it starts with you know going to a trade event and buying someone a beer and, and picking up a conversation and sort of building a relationship on top of that so uh, and if you're selling, to a relationship-type-based sale, then uh, like a book like Spin Selling is very mm-hmm. good to to kind of pick that up. But, yeah, I would recommend reading absolutely everything you could and then trying it out on people that it's okay if you bomb on that because, you know, they were like a C or a D-type candidate for you in the first place.
0: Okay, so Solo Founder Life is clearly busy. Can you give people an idea of what it looks like every day when you go into work?
1: Oh, wow. Okay, so... <laughs> um, I have a two-year-old son, Mm -hmm. and my wife is a busy worker at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. So my day starts with getting up and making sure that he's taken care of and taking him off to daycare. So that starts at like, gosh, I'd say 4.45, I get up. Mm -hmm. Um, So get him to daycare by 630, head into my office, which is in Atlanta, full day in the office, going through uh, what the development guys had done the day before. So that's me and then a contract guy that I've got working for me. And then sort of seeing what's on the product roadmap there, following up on customer leads that that we've been working on, uh, both email contacts as well as people who have come to the website and signed up, things like that middle of the day typically carving some time out to do uh, outbound sales contacts so new fresh leads that have been churned up Uh, have a couple stand-up meetings there one with my uh, SDR person Casey and then another with my development guy Ramon at the end of the day it's just going through and seeing what we need to set up for the next day in order to make sure that things succeed going home having dinner uh, spend a couple hours with the family put the kid to bed and then sit down and do some coding and so I'll probably stay up until midnight or one o'clock and do some coding and then get up and
0: wake up at 4 45
1: yeah i live on caffeine right now
0: yeah i think most of us do honestly (laughs) but you definitely need caffeine
1: and stress yes but it's good though because you know i internalize stress it powers me so
0: (laughs) (laughs) what advice do you have for other solo founders
1: oh find a co-founder for sure
0: (laughs) don't do it got it uh okay that's all i have santos you're good all good All right, then that's this week's episode of Dynamo Discussions. Thanks this week to Kenco, an amazing sponsor at Dynamo and the largest woman owned third party logistics company in the US. That's pretty legit. Learn more about Kenco at KencoGroup.com. Also check us out at HelloDynamo.com and learn about all Shane has going on at SynapseMX.com. One more thing, Santosh has taken over our Twitter account, and he wants to chat about logistics tech, accelerator life, startups, and all things investor-related. So say hello at This Is Dynamo. Okay, have a good week.